Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. And so as we prepare ourselves here now to go to the Word, as I've mentioned, and as those of you who have been with us over the last several weeks, we're, in, we're right now in the ministry of Paul. And here I think it's such a fitting place in Scripture today, is especially as we're appointing someone into the ministry, to see some of the challenges that come along with that. To recognize that when God calls someone into the ministry, no surprise, it's not always easy. But we're not called to the things that are easy, necessarily. We're called to be faithful. We're called to follow and to do so obediently and to submit ourselves to the will of the Father. And so we'll see that happening here in the life of Paul today. And so I want to encourage everyone that there's an element of our time this morning that will be geared towards installing someone into the ministry, laying hands on those who have been called to either be a deacon or to be a pastor. This is for everyone. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, in fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, God still has a plan for your life. He wants to know you. He wants you to follow Him, to surrender to Him. And in that, He has a calling for you. He has a a way in which you can serve Him and to follow after Him. And, And so for all of you today, though we may not be laying hands on each of you for a specific role in ministry, take heart today and listen to the words that the Spirit has for us today as it relates to what you should be doing and following after the Lord. And so with that, if you would, just agree with me in prayer as we begin. Father, we pause here this morning. We thank you for the awesome time that we've already had in fellowship together, Lord, and praise and worship. And I pray, Lord, that our time of worship has been truly that, where we can proclaim to you how great you are and begin, Lord, or continue to be surrendering our wills to you. That's much of the importance of worship, is declaring who you are, and in light of who you are, who, who we must be, and how we must follow after you, Lord. And so I pray that you'd continue to do that work here today, and as we go to your word, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, teach us here today. Change our hearts and minds for you, Lord. Father, do work in our midst here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we're getting caught up here in Acts chapter 23, remember that Paul's on his third missionary journey. He's nearing the end of his life here and subsequently his ministry. And I think he has a sense of that. He knows what's before him. There have been many warnings to Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he went to Jerusalem anyway, being bound by the Spirit, as he said, that though people were concerned about what was going to happen to Paul when he got to Jerusalem, he knew that the Lord was calling him there. It didn't mean that he shouldn't go. It meant that he needed to be aware of the persecution that would come against him, of the imprisonment That would happen when he went. And so now Paul is in custody in Jerusalem. There's been a a couple of riots that have happened in response to Paul's teaching. And this was something that Paul had looked forward to for so long. For 20 years, 20 plus years, Paul had desired to be able to share the gospel with his Jewish brethren, having a heart for them, a broken heart, desiring so that they would see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this time here in Jerusalem, like this was his moment. This is what Paul had been waiting for. Paul had no doubt been rehearsing in his mind what he would say and how he would say it. Yet to this point, the message had fallen flat. Not just flat, it had incited riots. It had incited violence against him. And and now he's in custody. And in this particular portion here this morning, now he's going to be brought before the Sanhedrin. These are the most powerful religious leaders of the day, of which Paul was formerly a part of. 
He was one of these men. And so here he's thinking, okay, Lord, now they didn't listen to me at first. Then I came back to them and, and they didn't listen to me then. But now I've got the opportunity to go before the religious leaders. Now I get to go before the Sanhedrin. Oh, Lord, this is going to be great. You know how we do that? How we start to build things up in our mind? We anticipate what it is that the Lord's going to do and how he's going to do it. We start to lay that whole thing out and we plan for every piece of it. And we, oh, it's going to be so great. Sometimes it doesn't go that way, though, does it? And he had to be so excited that he was finally getting this opportunity. And so he begins to look intently at the Sanhedrin as we pick up in Acts 23. And it says, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, this may seem like an odd way to start his message, having certainly considered it before he went in. But what he was effectively saying to the Sanhedrin there was, I have a clear conscience regarding how I've lived my life. That if he'd wronged anyone along the way, he's worked to make it right. That he's made an effort to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And so as he begins this message and says to them, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day, he doesn't get any further than that opening comment then at verse 2, we see, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I mean, my goodness, here he is. This is his big moment. And he declares, men and brethren, here I am. And, and I've lived in good conscience to this day. And wham, he gets hit in the face. They had to take him off guard quite a bit, wouldn't it? And I think it's both the fact that Paul addresses them boldly as equals by saying, men and brethren... It would have been customary for him to have addressed them in a more formal manner, showing their superiority to him. But he addresses them as men and brethren. And then he claims to have lived a life in good conscience, yet despite that fact, he's standing here before them, an accused man. And so at this point, Ananias, the high priest, orders him to be struck in the mouth. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Before he goes any further, you strike this man in the face and you make him stop slap him, punch him, whatever it was, however it was that he was hit, it was intended to send a message. And so here is Paul gets smacked in the face at the very beginning of this great opportunity that he's looked forward to for 20 years. He's got to be thinking, well, this is off to a great start. Not exactly how he'd envisioned this encounter going. Now, what happens next here is a matter of some debate. And from my perspective, I don't think it was Paul's best moment, though I don't fault him for it. Now, we don't have a clear sense of exactly how Paul communicated this, but it would seem as if Paul was rather angry here at this moment and loses his temper a little bit, as in verse 3 it says, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now, you know, it seems here that Paul, no doubt he's taken aback, that he was just hit in the face at the beginning of his message. I got to tell you, if that happened to me, I mean, it might take a minute to recover. And so here it seems that he probably gives vent to his anger when he says to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And now, while I wouldn't necessarily condone Paul's actions here and, and what he says, that we can understand the reaction, we can understand the way that he's feeling. And furthermore, the comment that he makes is really both accurate and appropriate given the situation. 
The high priest Ananias was not a great man. And he was, in fact, a hypocrite and a liar. And that's essentially what Paul was saying to him at this point. We don't have the time this morning to dig into the various meanings of this phrase, whitewashed wall, but the idea is that you're a hypocrite. Whitewashing is just a veneer. It's a covering over something else that that you're trying to make look a little more appealing. But after you do it, it's still the same thing. It's been said that you can't put lipstick on a pig. Anybody heard that? You could, but it's still just be a pig with lipstick, right? We must be careful, Christians, that we don't fall into this same category here that Paul is addressing with Ananias. You know, far too often it's been the attitude of the church to be hypocrites, where sinners look down on other sinners as if somehow they're better. Many people have felt rejected and condemned by the church. The very people who have received grace and mercy and been forgiven much should be willing to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness, should we not? Now, interestingly enough, there would come a time not too long after this where God would strike Ananias. But Paul's reaction here, unfortunately, seems to begin to further derail this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And in verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's a few theories that exist here, one of which suggests that Paul had very bad eyesight. We have evidence of that within Scripture, and that he could not see that this was the high priest. Now, this seems unlikely to me that he would not know who the high priest was, especially as the command likely came from him to to another to strike him in the mouth. So even if he was not able to see him well, I would think that Paul would have known who he was, but he may not have. Others suggest that Paul, in light of his absence from the Sanhedrin for 20 or so years, you know, that things had changed, that he may not have obviously known many who were a part of the Sanhedrin at that time, the high priest included, that maybe the high priest was not dressed as he normally would have been, indicating who in fact he was, and he just didn't realize it. There's others who say that Paul was being sarcastic, even antagonistic towards the high priest, almost in a sense of, oh, I didn't know that you were the high priest, because basically, why would you have just done what you did if you were the high priest? Because that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think that all of this was a bit of a slip-up on Paul's part, that he lost his temper, and he's realizing that he may have just goofed up and cost his opportunity to share the gospel. And from here, I think we see him trying to regain his footing a little. And now some people don't like that because we think of the Apostle Paul, right? And we think, oh, well, you can't say that the Apostle Paul messed up. Was he inspired in his writings? Yes, absolutely. And so we should not question a word of Scripture. But Paul was still the man. And we see Paul on other occasions addressing the fact that he wished that perhaps he would have done something different, said something different, and this time was likely one of those moments. And so here we see that in verse 6, Paul perceives one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, there's some debate over what it was that Paul was doing here. Paul was a smart man. He understood his audience. 
Although we have to consider what was happening here in even this short period of time that here he's so excited, he's probably all kinds of amped up on adrenaline, ready to go before him. This is my moment. Then he gets hit in the face. Then he yells at the high priest. And of course, they don't like that very much. And so he's probably struggling a little bit right now to to figure out, oh, Lord, what am I doing? Help me to figure this out, Lord. Get me back on track. And so he perceives that part of the group are Pharisees and part are Sadducees. And he then says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Some believe that Paul at this point is seeking to preserve his life. And for that reason, he intentionally divides the group, knowing that it's going to take the attention off of him and onto another topic. And if that's true, then it certainly worked, because we'll see here shortly that Paul then gets pulled from this situation by the guard. I struggle with that a little bit, though, because Paul, we know based off of Scripture that he was not afraid to lose his life. I don't think he was operating out of a sense of self-preservation. And secondly, we know that he had such a desire to see his brethren saved that I have difficulty thinking that he sort of through the fight, if you will. I think what he's doing is trying to regain some traction here, but as we'll see, this doesn't really work the way that he had hoped. What Paul was hoping to do was gain some common ground, but in the end, it just created more unrest. He'll address that later in Acts, and we'll get there over the next couple of weeks, and he will suggest that maybe he was wrong in mentioning what he mentioned. We don't know for sure exactly what his intent was, other than it even further spiraled things out of control. For in verse 7, and when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So again, if Paul was seeking here to try and divert attention, to spare his own life, certainly it was effective in that. The problem is, this is almost the equivalent of addressing today's Congress and seeking to find common ground on taxes or immigration. And so there was quickly a clear division of parties that was fueled with emotion. And so when there arose a great dissension in verse 10, the commander fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Now, there was an inclination on the part of the commander here now, knowing that Paul was a Roman citizen, to uh, certainly protect him, but it was less out of a devotion to Paul or an agreement with Paul on some of the issues. Furthermore, they were tasked with keeping peace. You know, the Jews of this time would quickly get out of control. And recently here over the past few days, there'd been a couple of riots. And so they wanted to try and keep the peace. And so here out of fear, they pull him out and they remove Paul from the scene. And that was the end of it. Now consider this, three different attempts from Paul to share the gospel. And it simply resulted in three riots. What in the world was happening here? Paul had been compelled to go to Jerusalem. He had no doubt built it up in his mind what was going to be accomplished, how they were going to see the Spirit move, all the people, all of his brethren that were going to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He'd been set on going to Jerusalem. From the time of his conversion, he wanted to go. Remember Romans 9, what did Paul say as it related to his brethren? But let me be accursed for their sake. 
Do we grasp that? I laid that challenge before us last week, and I hope that some of you prayed about that and considered that Paul effectively said, I'll go to hell in their place. That's incredible. That's devotion. That is a broken heart for the lost. So now what must have been going through Paul's mind, and maybe you can relate, as he perhaps thinks things like, if only I'd said this, if I hadn't lost my temper, if I would have opened my message this way, if I would have done it just a little bit differently. You see, folks, for those of us limited in our understanding, especially on this side of heaven, there are a million what-ifs. And the enemy will use those what-ifs to destroy our confidence. We begin to think we're no good, we're failures, to maybe question our calling. Maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe, maybe God doesn't really want me to do this. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. You know, it just hasn't been going my way. I had this idea of what it would be, but it hasn't turned out that way at all. And the enemy strikes on that. Satan uses it to erode our identity in Christ. Who would want me? I'm just a failure. I screwed it up again. God gave me this opportunity and I messed it up. There's a million what ifs. But for the Lord in the midst of all of that, there are no what ifs. Now we should always seek to learn from the past. We should always seek to learn from what we perceive as failures to improve, to do things differently. But if we get stuck on all the what ifs, if we worry about everything that maybe has gone on, then we focus on the past. And we focus on things that we can't control and we can't change. What we must be focused on is where we go from there. And even more importantly, who we follow. And for Paul on this journey, he received some much needed encouragement. As we read in verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You see, in the midst of despair, no doubt taking the burden of this seemingly failed attempt on his own shoulders, the Lord in some way manifests himself because he's described here as standing next to Paul. And so he manifests his presence in some way with Paul, and he says to Paul, be of good cheer. There's more work to be done. To go to Rome was a fulfillment of the desire of Paul's own heart. He'd wanted, he'd longed to go to Rome. And it further reinforced the fact that God was not done with him. Christian, do you know that you can be of good cheer even in the midst of trials and tribulations? Sometimes we say that. We don't necessarily carry it out. That we can be of good cheer even when it seems that nothing has gone our way or when we feel like we've let everyone down. Life, ministry, it will rarely go the way that we've envisioned it. More often than not, we're going to feel inadequate, less than what we desire to be. But in the midst of that, the promises of the Word of God rise up off the pages of Scripture and remind us that God is with us. And there's still work to be done. What Paul didn't yet know, as he goes to leave, as he's led away, there's 40 Jewish men that have made an oath to take his life, to kill him. If you read on, they say that they'll neither eat nor drink until they've taken his life. Paul had no idea that that was even going on at this point. He had no idea how bad it had gotten. But the Lord did. And he told Paul, be of good cheer. Go to Rome and testify of me there. And no doubt when Paul left the next day, and when he was encountered by either those men or learned of it, or any of his other enemies, he had to feel a sense of confidence. 
of protection, of knowing that if the Lord has called me to this, He's going to lead me through this. He has got this. He's equipped me for it. And I don't need to be afraid. Rather, I should be of good cheer because I've been called to a particular work. Christian, what the Lord has planned for you will be fulfilled. We're called to follow, to seek and follow after Him. And in so doing, we can trust that He will take care of the rest. If you are in His Word, if you are praying, if you are following after Him, if you are surrendered, submitted to His will, you can trust that He can and will carry out His plan and purpose in your life. Paul had submitted himself to the will of God. And as he proceeded, it was not in his own will, but in agreement with the will of the Father. Rest assured, Christian, that until you draw your very last breath, we must be of good cheer, follow him, and know that there's more work to do. And so this morning, Christian, be of good cheer. As I mentioned earlier, I don't know what it is that you may be facing today. There may be a multitude of different things. Or again, you may be in a place where, you know, you don't feel as if you're in a great time of tribulation, yet there's worries, there's anxiety, there's a wondering about how is God going to do this? What is God going to do? Maybe you've been given a promise. Maybe you've heard from the Lord at some point about something he wanted to do in your life, yet it doesn't seem as if it's coming to fruition. And you're wondering when, Lord? How are you going to do this? Why did you tell me this however long ago it was yet? I haven't realized this yet. In every one of those situations, the Lord would say to us, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And so for Paul, it was this reminder of, I'm not done with you yet. There's more for you to do. And when it was day, verse 12, so we assume then the next morning, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the situation is becoming even more dire. Here's there's over 40 men that have vowed. They've said, we're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We are going to be solely focused on taking Paul's life. These were what were known as dagger men in the day. They were known for their plots to kill and to assassinate, most oftentimes centurion guards. They would walk around keeping daggers under their cloaks, and as they walked by one or two guards somewhat unassumingly, they would pull the daggers from underneath their cloaks and lunge at these guards, and they'd stab them and kill them. And then they'd just move on quickly and get out of the area. And so they had no issue with the taking of life, and they saw it as a work of the Lord. So to say that they had taken a vow to kill Paul, this was serious business. Normally, one would be very concerned to learn of such a threat. However, in the case of Paul, he would be able to move forward with great confidence knowing that the Lord was calling him to something more, that the Lord would have his hand upon his life. And here we see something that is no small miracle, though it may seem insignificant embedded amongst the text here as we read in verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We've got to be careful that we don't read over this quickly. For one, it's kind of fun here that we get a little insight into Paul's 
family in his life as we read that he had a sister and his sister's son. This is his nephew. We don't often consider Paul's family, who they were, what they might have been doing, how they might have felt about Paul and the work that he was called to. In fact, we believe that Paul himself had a wife at one point. For him to have been a part of the Sanhedrin would have likely necessitated it. At this point in time, within the Jewish culture, if you were to be considered a righteous man, you were to have a wife. And so for him to have been a part of the Sanhedrin would, again, almost have necessitated that. Yet we don't learn anything of his wife. So she's either passed away or left him when he left what was a promising career, that he would be one of the religious elites of the day. That when he gave all of that up to pursue Jesus Christ, that perhaps she left him at that point. And so Paul has family. He has family in the area. And do you think that his nephew just happened to be there? That he just happened to be there to hear this, right? No, folks, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. This is a work of God. It was not just an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. And it wasn't fate. Those words shouldn't be included within the context of the Christian faith. God is sovereign. And in his providence, he's continually involved in his creation. Now, listen, there is a spectrum, if you will, of God's sovereignty and his providence that exists within Christianity today. And you may find yourself somewhere on that spectrum of, you may be one who sort of falls on this end where it's just God is so sovereign that he is involved in influencing every single tiny detail. Or perhaps you're on the other end of it where there is so much free will that God is essentially reacting to our choices to work and to bring about his plan and his purposes based off of what it is that we do. Now, we're not going to go down the path of trying to decide, hey, where do we all stand on all of that today? But what we can agree on, regardless of which end you're on, is that God is involved. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God will accomplish that plan and purpose, and he will do so in some of the smallest ways. But we can trust when we know that we are operating in God's will that he is going to take care of it. And so it's not a foolish thing when you are called to something and you are confident that you're walking in line with God's will and something comes up and there's a need for something that you can with confidence say, God's going to take care of it. God has this. He's going to provide. Now, it may not always happen in the way in which we are anticipating or thinking, but I can guarantee you that in every situation, when you are in need, when you are struggling with something, when you are waiting on the Lord to provide, that in time you will be able to look back and reflect. And this is why elements of journaling are so important. Many of you may not like to journal. I've always struggled with it. But it's fun when you can look at the things you've written down, the prayer requests you've made, the things that you've sought the Lord on, and you can look back and go, wow, look how God provided. Look at the things that he did. Look at the, look at the circumstances that he arranged that brought about the fulfillment of this promise that maybe even in the moment you weren't even aware of. And so here, this is God at work as Paul's nephew is there to listen to this and to think, oh no, I've got to go tell somebody about this. So though there were over 40 men that made a vow to take Paul's life, the Lord had said, you're going to Rome, Paul. And so no matter what they wanted to do, Paul was in essence invincible at this moment because God was going to take care of him. And so here Paul's nephew runs and he tells Paul, and in verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. 
So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, in verse 20, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So remember again, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you will testify of me in Rome. Never mind that there is a mob of angry men ready to take your lives. I said you're going to Rome. Do we get that, Christian? That Paul would leave his cell the next day, not worried about these 40-plus men that were seeking to take his life, but smiling at his enemies instead saying, I'm going to Rome, and there's nothing you can do about it. Though he's nearing the end of his life, Paul still has what we think is probably almost 10 years of ministry left, even at this point. Now, he's starting to operate in terms of things are wrapping up, but 8 to 10 years are still going to go by before Paul actually goes home to be with the Lord. And the bulk of this time would be in prison. Paul's going to spend the rest of his time, for the most part, with the exception of a few years in prison, and for a while, two years in house arrest. But that entire time, he would know that God's hand was upon him. And then look at the protection that he receives here. Look at how the circumstances here that God works out, not only is Paul's nephew there to hear about this, to go and tell him and to tell the guard, but then what happens next in terms of how they get Paul to safety in verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is incredible. As this is coming together and they're beginning to transport Paul, he has to be thinking in his mind, God, only you can do this. Only you can do this. This is like a full presidential secret service detail with Paul in a motorcade, okay? This is big stuff here, that they are protecting him and ensuring that they are taking care of him through this. Paul has to just be blown away. And not just that, but at this point, Paul also has to be considering the fact that not only is God preparing for this journey, not only is God taking care of him, but here now he's going where? But before the governor that he would have yet another high-profile audience to be able to share the gospel. And he comes with a letter. In verse 25, he wrote a letter in the following manner. This is the commander there, Claudius Lysias. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Notice that part there that Paul had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Does that sound familiar? 
And so it's incredible to see the way in which Paul's life is beginning to somewhat parallel that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That Paul was an innocent man in chains. Now Luke, being led of the Spirit as he wrote this, he ensured that this particular portion was recorded so that we would understand that though he was in prison, he had done nothing wrong. Yet, so in light of that, should we mourn for Paul? Should we think of this terrible injustice? Would the believers back in Tyre and Ptolemy and Caesarea, would they mourn over this? They may have been saying, see, Paul, we told you that this is what was going to happen. We told you before you went to Jerusalem that you shouldn't go because this is what was going to happen to you. Yet Paul was encouraged. Paul was strengthened. He wasn't complaining and protesting over this injustice. What he was recognizing was that the Lord's hand was upon him. He was thinking, I am right where the Lord wants me to be. And Christian, that's the kind of craziness that we get to live in. Those are some of the things that we get to say that cause people to go, what? What's wrong with you? Why would you think that? Why would you think that way? We're not of this world, folks. We're not supposed to be. Not everything is always going to make sense. That I am right where I am supposed to be was the sense of Paul here. Why? How could he say that? Well, for one, Jesus told him. Right? But look at this here in the last part of the chapter here. Then the soldiers in verse 31, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Paul, standing now before the governor, and the governor says, I will hear you. Do you have any idea what this means? We can't overlook this. Do you suppose that Paul would have ever had an audience with the governor in this way? Perhaps, but most likely not. And this isn't the end here. You know, he's already appeared before the Sanhedrin. Then he was before the commander. Now he's being brought before the governor. And we'll learn in Acts 27 when we get there in a few weeks that he would eventually share with Caesar. Now, the word doesn't give us the exact account of when he would preach to Caesar, but it says in Acts 27, the Lord says to him again, you will testify of me before Caesar. And we must understand here that what is happening, though it may be uncomfortable, though there is persecution, though there's trials, though there's tribulation, God's plan is being carried out. Now think back to the beginning here, well, right at the account when Paul was saved. In Acts 9.15, what did the Lord say to Ananias as he was going to Paul? Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This was from the very beginning. You don't think God had his hand on Paul's life? That he was directing him and using him for his purpose that he was called to? And you've heard me say before that if we want to lay claim to the promises of the word, if you and you read this, you say, I want this in my life. That I want to experience what the Lord has for me in this that I want to lay hold of these promises. I want this to be true of my life. If you want to lay claim to the promises of the word of God, then you must recognize the Lord's claim on you. And Paul was a man who understood the Lord's claim on his life. 
He understood what God had purposed in him. And so maybe in the midst of some difficulties in your life, maybe it's a change in plans, whatever it is for you that the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you, maybe instead of saying, why God? Or no, God, you need to say, wow, God, or yes, God, and repent of the times when you're continually questioning and wondering what it is that he's doing, and instead say, Lord, you are at work, and I don't understand it right now, and I don't fully get it all, but I am confident in what you're doing in my life, and I'm going to praise you for that. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you would. When we get to the end of the book of Acts, we'll see that, as I mentioned, that Paul is under house arrest. That's essentially how the book of Acts will end. And he preaches the gospel from this house for about two years, two years in house arrest, and he is at work ministering. Again, he's under house arrest. He's stuck in a house, yet he has two years of fruitful ministry. And I want you to hear this today because so often, yes, I am encouraging, I'm exhorting, and by the way, I always lump myself into this, but exhorting you to say, figure out what the Lord wants you to do. Be faithful to calling. Step out. Take action. But as I often say, don't think that it's about this. If we're doing this one thing in church, it doesn't mean that you have to be involved in that or you have to be involved in this. You need to be seeking out where does the Lord have you? How would he have you serve? And do not consider your limitations, but be faithful to serve right where he has you because I promise you he's got something for you, a way that he can use you. And for Paul here, he was in house arrest, yet he's ministering there. It was a fruitful two years of ministry. And one of the things that we get from this time in ministry is his letter to the church in Philippi the letter to the Philippians. Now, this is written about 60 to 62 AD, somewhere in that range. Paul, we think, died in the year 67 AD, 68. So there's still time. And here, in light of this context, okay, he's been imprisoned. He's been taken from Jerusalem, and then he's now in Rome. He's dealt with failure. He's dealt with so many different things. And here, listen to his words in chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, listen, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident at this point because of the experiences that he had, because of the faithfulness of the Lord, that he said he's going to do it. He's going to finish it. He's working in your life and trust him. He's going to bring it through to completion until that day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The wisdom that Paul is sharing, the encouragement he's sharing with him, though he's in prison and has been for much time. And here he says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This is incredible. What perspective he had. What things happened to Paul. He writes several years earlier in the 
second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He says, are they ministers in verse 23 of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the church. So when he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This is a man with credibility. Verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because other people were saying, well, if Paul's doing this, if Paul has this perspective, if he can speak out and God is taking care of him in the situation that he is, how much more can I go and proclaim the gospel? Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What about these, both these situations? One of them's doing it with an improper heart. The other ones are doing it with a genuine heart. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice, because he had an understanding of the preeminence of Christ that it's all about Jesus. So Christian, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're struggling with, you can be confident that God is at work. He's carrying out a plan. He's carrying out the purpose that he's called you to. And in all of these things, Christ can and will be glorified. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul knew what he was there for. He knew what the Lord was doing. And we can have that same understanding in Colossians chapter 1. And one of the things that Paul says at the beginning of that letter to the church in Colossae is he says, first of all, I never cease to pray for you. I never stop. Because remember, Christian, prayer is such an important tool that is so rarely used. And in prayer, we don't necessarily change the circumstances or the situation so much as we often just bring ourselves in line with his will. And what was Paul praying for that church for? But that they would have all spiritual understanding of the knowledge of the will of God in their lives. Why? So that they could walk worthy. So that they could know what God wanted for them, that they could walk in obedience to that and in turn walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ to proclaim his name, to advance the kingdom and make his name known. That should be our desire. That should be our heart. Paul would eventually be released from prison, and he'd minister a little while longer, and then he'd be imprisoned again in the Mamertine prison in Rome under Emperor Nero. This would be around the time shortly after Nero had burned Rome nearly to the ground, sinking deeper into insanity, and he would blame the Christians for much of what happened there. And so Paul would be martyred under these circumstances. And shortly before his martyrdom, he would write his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, saying, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul had such a tremendous perspective, one that we should all long to have. And my question would be, do you love his appearing today? Are you looking for him? Are you listening for his words of encouragement to you in the midst of the trials? The Lord says, you be of good cheer. I'm at work. There's more for you to do. I'm going to carry you through this thing until the very end. Like Paul, I would ask you this morning, would you rest before the Lord here and worship and praise, but reflect? You know, certainly deal with the things that you need to deal with. No one's to take communion in an unworthy manner. And so if there's things in your life that the Lord needs to deal with, use this time to, to surrender that to him. But maybe you're like Paul today too, and you're wrestling with a whole lot of things about, Lord, I've I failed in this. Lord, I've, I've struggled in this. Lord, I, I don't measure up in this area. How could you possibly have more for me? How could you use me, Lord? Yeah, I want to be faithful in ministry, but Lord, me? How could you use me in that? I've screwed it up too many times. Whatever the case may be, use this time to come before him and just, just share those things with the Lord. But do that in such a way where you're willing to pause and to listen, because I promise you his voice is one of grace and mercy. It's not about you, and it never has been. I'm just asking you to be faithful, to be willing to give those things up, to be willing to repent of this, whatever it is, and then just allow me to do that work because I have something for you. And like Paul, the message to many of us today may be, hey, I'm not done yet. Here's something else I have for you that I'm calling you to. And then we step out in faith, believing the promises And just as Paul did, I'd argue from this time forward that he would endure every trial with a sense of purpose, with that reminder from the Lord of, be of good cheer. I've told you what I've called you to, now just be faithful to do it. So that at the end, at the end, he could say, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've stuck with it. Yes, by the grace of God, but he stuck with it. And we can have that same confidence if we seek him diligently and we submit to him. And so may now this time just be that point of submission to say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to listen to the lies of the enemy. I'm going to put these things aside. Lord, I'm going to listen to the conviction of these things maybe in my life that aren't pleasing you, whatever it is. And you say, Lord, I'm going to submit, I'm going to surrender, I'm going to trust you to carry out this work in my life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we pause and prepare for a time of communion. May this be pleasing to you, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we be glorified here now as we take of the bread and of the, the cup, Lord, and we do so in remembrance of you. But Father, I pray that you do a work in each of our hearts here now, my own included. If there's anything that's not of you, Lord, that you deal with it and that we'd have the willingness, Lord, to say, okay, Lord, take it. Or that maybe there's some who are discouraged here today too and they just need to hear a word of encouragement from you, Lord, and I pray that that would come. But that we would leave here, Lord, as we've taken a communion, that we would leave here with a sense of, Lord, we're following after you. We're trusting you. Trusting in the work that you've begun in us, Lord, knowing that you're faithful and just to complete it. May our dependence be fully upon you today, Lord, not of ourselves. Father, move in our hearts and in our midst here now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.